0: human rights group Amnesty International claims the government of Syria may have committed crimes against humanity when it cracked down on protesters in a border town in May. The group has urged the International Criminal Court to look into the deaths of nine protesters detained by Syrian forces in the town of Tel Kalakh. Amnesty spokesperson Peter Clark said the deaths were part of a widespread and systematic attack against the civilian population. Over 1,300 civilians are believed to have been killed in the 14 weeks of protests against Syrian President Bashar al Assad.
1: Hello, welcome back to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. First off, I want to thank everybody for their patience and understanding during this unplanned hiatus and the following slow output of episodes. I'm happy to say that my mom is doing a lot better now. She's recovering very well. She's making progress day by day. She keeps saying, I'm feeling a little better every time I see her. So this is much better than things were when they started a couple months ago. Thank you so much to everyone who sent messages of support. It really meant a lot. I can't thank y'all enough for that. Every person who takes time to listen to this show, mention us on social media, or otherwise help us out, y'all are the best. Thank you so much. Let's take a step away from my present-day angst and walk carefully into today's episode. I put a lot of time into the research and pre-production for this episode, figuring out where to put the pieces together. This is an episode that we need to approach carefully with nuanced thinking, because we're going over some pivotal moments. Not just for this episode, I'm talking about major inflection points in the story whose long-term consequences affect our world to this day. Very gradually. Little by little, every episode moves us a little closer to the image most people have of Syria in the 2010s. A despotic regime and its poorly trained, undisciplined militias fighting armed rebels who range from inexperienced idealists to battle-hardened extremists. A completely unrestrained and inhumane form of warfare where entire cities are subjected to apocalyptic mass violence for weeks, months, sometimes years. We're not there yet in 2011. We've seen the very first sieges take place in Dara, Homs, Jisr al Shagur, and several smaller towns in the rural north, accused of providing shelter to insurgents. That last city I mentioned was recently the site of the first confirmed battle A two-way gunfight between regime security forces and a diverse collection of armed opposition. This type of armed conflict is the first to take place in Syria since the 1980s, but it's still exceedingly rare in June and July. Large protests continue to take place all over the country from major cities to the smallest villages and remain almost entirely peaceful. Instances where they've turned violent, are usually the result of soldiers, police, and Shabiha militiamen firing live bullets into packed crowds of demonstrators. A great example of this is when snipers wearing masks shot protesters from a building in Dara, which prompted the massive crowd to storm the building, grab those snipers, and throw them off the rooftop and out the windows to their deaths. This came after those snipers and others like them serving in the Assad regime's security apparatus had been killing scores of protesters for months. I think most people would be angry after being almost killed or having multiple people you care about killed on a regular basis. The regime is getting more and more desperate to squelch the opposition, which is why the deployment of military forces to civilian areas and massacres of protesters are escalating. The armed opposition, exemplified by but not limited to the local coordination councils, is struggling to keep the Syrian revolution a peaceful one inspired by those of Tunisia and Egypt. The armed opposition in this episode will evolve from small localized cells to the beginnings of a loose network scattered across the country the armed opposition will issue one last warning to the Assad regime demanding an end to the sieges of cities and massacres of protesters. One last warning before they begin offensive operations against those who carry out the campaign of atrocities. The regime will thumb their nose at this threat and initiate one of the most widespread and brutal crackdowns yet, right at the beginning of the holiest month in Islam. Last left off on June 24th, 2011, the Friday of lost legitimacy. The protests have reached their largest numbers thus far, and now they're occurring in places where we have not seen before, such as in the upscale Zabadani suburb in Damascus. The regime is also setting up checkpoints throughout the northern parts of the country in an attempt to prevent refugees from flowing out of the Aleppo province. To really illustrate what's happening right now, just a put you in the shoes of people living in Syria in 2011, I want to turn to a couple of quotes, really, really paint the picture. First, we're going to read a passage from Civil War in Syria by Adam Boxo, Giles Doronsaro, and Arthur Cusney. This is also sometimes referred to as Civil War in Syria by Boxo et al. Quote, With no figure or organization to target, the regime ratcheted up the risks to individuals associated with the protests, Violence became increasingly indiscriminate and its effects less calculable. First, the regime evolved its economy of repression by making torture systematic, a form of individualized violence on an industrial scale. Starting in 2011, it arrested and tortured several hundred thousand people. Based on information provided by a prison employee defector, we have proof that over 11,000 people were tortured to death. Death In less than two years, from spring 2011 to the summer of 2013 in Damascus prisons, the total figure is certainly much higher. Despite the regime's determined efforts, the intelligence services not having a distinct target at which to direct their dissuasive violence were overwhelmed. As the torture campaign escalated, space in prisons became scarce, leading to severe overcrowding in the cells. While the intelligence services tortured most of their prisoners, interrogation often happened long after their arrest, or not at all. Prisoners that were released a few weeks later and their families were threatened to stop them from continuing to protest. Competition among the 18 intelligence units did, in fact, limit sharing of information. Several of the most active protesters were released. Now they quote one of those protesters. The regime stopped me twice, but I was always released, even though I was very involved in the organization of events. I wasn't even interrogated. The security forces seemed unable to cope. Unable to control the crowds in the streets, the security forces dispersed the protesters with brutality, even indiscriminately firing on them without warning. The repressive apparatus was now operating beyond all due process and instead relied heavily on the militias, or the shabiha. Now they quote another one of the protesters. As soon as we came out of the mosque to run away, the police ransacked everything. A militia man was slashing people with a saber, people right in front of me, one after another. I saw them fall until the crowd pushed me against him. Then he stopped hitting and started to howl he had lost his mind. In some cases, the security forces hid in ambulances to catch the demonstrators by surprise. The militia even hunted through hospitals to find the wounded. That was Civil War in Syria by Baxo et al. We've mentioned in previous episodes how there was a certain point where a lot of protesters stopped going to the hospital, even if they'd been shot. They stopped bringing their wounded to the hospitals because it wasn't safe for them there. They'd either be tortured in the hospital or they would be taken somewhere from the hospital to be tortured. And it was as simple as, hey, this person's got a gunshot wound. They're probably a protester. Call them macabre. Now let's zoom in and look at things from the perspective of the protesters in Syria. What effect is all this violence having on them? How is it affecting their perspective on peaceful protest versus violent struggle? For this, we're going to turn again to Yassin Al-Haj Saleh, someone I often refer to as one of the great philosophers of the Syrian revolution, somebody who does a does a really great job describing the thoughts that are prevalent within the opposition and explaining their perspective on a lot of matters that you often don't see in Western media. So this is a quote from Yassin al-Haj Saleh's book, The Impossible Revolution, Making Sense of the Syrian Tragedy. Syrian people shouted in anger and screamed in horror until they were blue in the face. Where are the Arabs? Where are the Muslims? Where is the world? Eventually, large segments of the population came to distrust everyone. All political powers are inadequate, conspiring, or corrupt. All Arab and international parties are complicit or simply powerless. Similarly, the regime is an unprincipled, armed savage. The only way to confront its violence is through violence. Perhaps armed violence is not always, in fact, exercise, but belief in its necessity is becoming rampant. Additionally, The mocking of all politics is now prevalent, a circumstance congenial to the violent elements and, naturally, to dictators. The ridicule of politics inevitably resulted in praise for arms. Toward the end of 2011, a chant was heard from Hama, No peacefulness or other BS, bang and boom is needed. The same slogan was also seen on placards in Mount Zawiya, in the northern parts of the country. This tendency is expanding across large segments of the Syrian population, chiefly among Sunni Muslims. It grew from an insignificant constituency. It was not anyone's first choice, and certainly no one's basic ideological or political predilection. That was Yassin al-Hajj Saleh writing in his book, The Impossible Revolution. That last point he made is really, really important. We really got to emphasize that at this point in time, in 2011, when you had a real revolution going on in Syria, you did have some extremists in the background. You did have some small numbers of individuals who fit the category of what we call jihadists. I'm not talking about your typical political Islam sympathizers. I'm talking about some hardcore, dangerous people, some of whom had gone over to Iraq in the previous decade to fight the US-led coalition there. But As Saleh described in the quote, they were at one point an insignificant constituency. They were not the majority in 2011. A majority of protesters did not agree with the kind of people who would go on to form Jabba al-Nusra or Arar al-Sham or a whole host of other god-awful organizations or Jaish al-Islam. I think one of the problems when people talk about Syria is that we fail to make a distinction between, and I know people are going to get mad at me for saying this, we fail to differentiate between different types of Islamism or political Islam, you know, political ideologies inspired by the religion, Islam. There are some people in this world who believe that modern politics is all corrupt, it's all forbidden, and you know what? I mean, yeah, you can kind of see how they came to that perspective. But their idea, which I personally disagree with, Is that Islam is the solution? That's pretty much been the slogan for the Muslim Brotherhood since the 1960s. But really, a lot of these people, even if you strongly disagree with them, even if you think that this is a repressive ideology that should be opposed, you have the right to think that. But I want to be very clear to the listeners that not every single Islamist, as we call them, is Osama bin Laden or Abu Bakr al Baghdadi or Abu Muhammad al Jolani, these. Scary bearded guys who have reputations for engaging in terrorism. I mean, they exist, but even among Islamists, they're not the majority. Some people listening to this might turn off the podcast in disgust at what I'm going to say next, but a lot of Islamists are not that different from most people. Basically, maybe I'm going too political here. Maybe I'm going to regret saying this, but well, there's really no other way to say it. Islamism is basically the Middle Eastern version of conservative politics. Imagine a conservative in whatever country you live in. If you're an American, imagine the Republican Party. If you're British, imagine the Conservative Party. Although, actually, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to say it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something controversial. When I look at the Muslim Brotherhood and I ask myself, what does this thing remind me most of? What other entity have I ever examined that resembles this the most? What is comparable to the Brotherhood and their idea that they have to enact Islamic values through legislation? It honestly reminds me of the American Republican Party. Now, I'm not talking about every single Republican. Not every Republican is like this, but there is a certain type of American politician, and you know who I'm talking about if you're American. There's a certain type of American politician whom every single time they go out in public— Every single time they mention the Bible or Jesus or something about how America is a Christian nation, you see this all the time. I grew up in the Bush years, the Obama years, the Trump years. I grew up watching these people. And for about a decade now, it was about 2012 or 2013 when I started learning about the Muslim Brotherhood. And I was like, oh, huh, these guys are kind of like Muslim Republicans. And I, I, I used to say that, and I'd get yelled at by people. People get angry at me when I would make that comparison. How no dare you! They're nothing alike! They'd get angry at me for saying that. And at the risk of giving into confirmation bias, what I've seen over the last 10 years is more and more and more evidence that I was right. I may very well insert some sound bites of some of the shit that I'm talking about, because I'm fucking tired of people denying it. The reason why I went on this tangent was to explain how An insignificant constituency of extremists went on to have such an important influence on the Syrian opposition. It's very complicated. It's going to be the subject of multiple episodes in the future. But a couple of factors we have to keep in mind are the extreme, extraordinarily brutal violence meted out by the Assad regime against everybody in the opposition. They didn't care if you, were, if you were secular. They didn't care if you were extremist. Hell, they probably were, they were probably more brutal to you if you were secular because they want to portray their opposition. The opposition is all extremists. So what really terrifies them is somebody like Roslan Zaituna or Maslin Darvish, public figures who are very obviously not extremists. The other thing to keep in mind is that you have a lot of people in 2011 who are not they, they, they are not extremists, at least yet. Their belief system is not the same as Al-Qaeda's or ISIS. You have a certain number of people. I don't know if they were like maybe 50% of the opposition or less, but you had a certain number of people in the opposition who were out in the streets chanting, hurrayah, freedom. They were out in the streets chanting, God, Syria, freedom, and nothing else. Allah, surya, hurrayah, wabas. And they meant it. But their interpretation of freedom would be a little different from that of somebody who believes in a secular civil state. The reason why these two different groups came together in 2011 was because they both agreed Assad should step down. This regime is becoming unbearable for us. What we're going to see in future episodes is that the regime will become more and more brutal. The more secular-minded civil society people are going to become more and more marginalized, even though... They probably do make up a majority of the Syrian opposition, and you're going to see more and more of the more mainstream Islamists within the Syrian opposition as the years go by, and as these people just go through horrible things, just about a decade of constant horrors and hardship, some of them will be radicalized by their experiences. Some of them will, at the risk of sounding rude, be driven insane. And they will become a very prime recruiting pool for multiple different armed factions within the Syrian opposition. Ranging from relatively moderate Islamist groups. I know, some gray zone reader's gonna blow a gasket when they hear me say that. You had some relatively moderate Islamist groups, like al a Army of Glory. But some of them also drifted into the really far fringe of Islamist thinking, such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. That is one of the many sad realities of the Syrian opposition, is that you had a lot of people in 2011 who weren't a certain way, but because of what they experienced over a period of years, they became different people. So you've got people who start off completely nonviolent in 2011 who are participating in fighting in 2012, 2013, You have moderates, ranging from, you know, maybe moderate centrist political types or moderately conservative religious people, not extremists yet. And after everything they go through, three years, five years, ten years later, they're in HTS or Arar al-Sham or Arar al-Sharqiyah, one of these really, really disreputable organizations. In late June 2011, Assad is facing more and more pressure from the international community. The European Union, for example, votes multiple times to impose sanctions after sanctions on the regime as the killings continue. This includes freezing the assets of multiple people and businesses connected to the regime. This is inconvenient for them, but they can survive this. What's a lot more significant for the regime, though, is the fact that their longtime ally, Turkey is now publicly condemning them for their brutality meted out against protesters. Now, okay, given what's going to happen like 2013 onward in Turkey, that is kind of ironic. Freaking Erdogan of all people criticizing someone for brutalizing protesters. But on the other hand, as brutal as Erdogan became in the late 2010s, he never ever stooped to Bashar al-Assad's level. So in 2011, we see the Turkish government publicly requesting That Bashar al-Assad dismiss his younger brother, Maher al-Assad, from his role as, now I'm paraphrasing them, the thug-in-chief of Syria. Which is a pretty accurate description of Maher al-Assad. Bashar's the leader, Maher's the enforcer. A lot of people compare the Assad regime to a mafia. I, I think it's a fairly accurate comparison. So basically, Turkey's offering Bashar an out. They're like, okay, look, dude, you've gone too far. Just make it look like you're listening to us. And we will be willing to forget this ever happened. Dismiss Maher, make some window dressing reforms, do what you got to do to calm things down, because this cannot keep happening. And a lot of Syrians will go on to be very grateful for the Turkish government taking such a public stand against Bashar al-Assad. But there is a lot of evidence that we're going to go through in future episodes showing that they really didn't do this out of the goodness of their heart. They did this because having a refugee crisis on their southern border is a big problem for them, and it does become a very, very big problem for Turkey and its national interests. But even though Turkey and Syria have such a close relationship in 2011, the request that Bashar fire his brother Maher falls completely on deaf ears. But the rest of the world takes note that one of Bashar al-Assad's longtime allies, Rashid Tayyip Erdogan, is now displeased with him and is not hiding it anymore. We should also mention at this time that the brutal collective punishment of areas in northwestern Syria that had recently risen up against the regime is continuing. The Syrian Arab army and Shabiha militias are continuing to brutally attack villages throughout the Idlib province, and now it's even escalated to rural communities in northern Aleppo. And this is in large part because Aleppo, a, a place that's often described as a regime stronghold, is seeing an unprecedented amount of protesting. Aleppo, as we say sometimes on this podcast, is kind of like the New York City of Syria. It's the economic hub of the country. And for that reason, a lot of rich business people who have connections to the regime live in Aleppo. There are a lot of people in Aleppo who support the regime, but they're not a monolith. The protests that we do see in Aleppo at this time largely originate from Aleppo University students. I mean, isn't that to be expected? Colleges are always where countercultural stuff starts. You always get a bunch of young people who don't like what's going on in their life. They want to have like more power over their situation. And suddenly you stick them all together and they're like, hey, maybe we should start organizing. You see this happen at a lot of universities all over the world. For more on this, I want to turn now to Dr. Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and it Trembled. Here she quotes a couple of people from Aleppo who described how the Protests gradually built up in the city. First, she quotes Hussein, a playwright from Aleppo. Quote, "'Slowly, protests got bigger. Some neighborhoods in Aleppo held demonstrations every week. I started working side by side with the young demonstrators. We organized weekly meetings in our houses, in secret, of course. One day, I was talking on the phone about going to a protest. My daughter was 16 or 17 at the time. She heard me and said, I want to go with you to a demonstration. We argued about it, but in the end, I agreed to let her come. She got ready, and then her mom, my ex wife, followed us to the door. She said, If you two are going to protest, I'm going too. I won't stay home alone. After that, they both became addicted to protesting. We later found out that my daughter was even skipping school to attend activist meetings. That was Hussein, a playwright from Aleppo. Quoted in Dr. Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and it Trembled. That's something I I keep seeing over and over again whenever I read books like We Crossed a Bridge and it Trembled or when I talk to Syrians who participated in the 2011 protests. That first time you vent your grievances in a country ruled by a totalitarian regime – that will put you in jail for uttering the mildest of criticisms. Publicly expressing your political sentiments for the first time in that environment, it is quite addictive, according to the people who have done it. Next, we're going to turn to another quote from the same book. This time, Dr. Perlman quotes Yasser, a former student from Aleppo. Quote, I went to my first protest in Aleppo in a big group, but there were so many people there that I lost my friends. I saw how the shabiha looked. One was holding a cane and pretending to use it as a crutch, even though he wasn't limping. One of them had a tool and was underneath a car, acting like he was fixing something. They were all pretending to do things, but really all had these objects so they could beat people. After a while, everyone was suspecting everyone else. The protest was supposed to begin at 8.30. By 8.35, nothing had started. Then an old man passed by the guy who was responsible for starting the chanting. The old man asked, Why are you just standing there? Either say something or leave. The young guy said, If this old man is braver than me, I'm going to kill myself. So he went out. He started shouting. And then everyone else went out too. Imagine you have a deck of cards, and all the cards go flying everywhere. That is what it was like. That was Yasser, a former student from Aleppo, interviewed by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. It was primarily young people, especially Aleppo University students, who really spearheaded these protests seen in Aleppo. And they were taking unusual risks in this situation. They faced a higher than average amount of danger protesting in Aleppo, of all places, the New York City of Syria, where all those pro-regime rich people live. People don't take risks like that unless they have some really powerful motivator. And that's what I was getting at when I was talking about how when people protest for the first time, they get addicted to it. There is something gratifying about expressing how you feel and venting your grievances when you've never had a chance to do so before. And something that often happened in 2011, one thing that you can see in a lot of videos of protests both in Syria and other countries where the Arab Spring took place you see these videos where a group of people will be marching down the street protesting, chanting slogans, and people will just be going about their day and see them. And without any prior planning, some of the people who see this column of protesters marching down the street, sometimes people will see that and instinctively join in. There's another quote from Dr. Perlman's book that does a really good job Describing what this is like. Now we turn to another Aleppo University student. This is Amal, a former student from Aleppo. Quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. Quote, Students were in the courtyard of the university, waiting for class to start. Someone started chanting, God is great. Allahu Akbar. Then others joined in and started chanting, freedom, Haraya." I got goosebumps. I was with a friend, and she grabbed my purse to hold me back, but I moved forward to join the demonstration. It was like I wasn't in control of my own body, and my legs were just moving by themselves. My friend kept pulling my purse backward, and I kept moving forward. The purse strap broke, and I merged into the crowd. That was Amal, a former student from Aleppo, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book. We crossed a bridge and it trembled. It's things like this that are causing the protest to get larger and larger and larger. Not only are more and more people becoming alienated from the regime as a result of their brutal repression, in addition to that, you have scenes like the one we just described, where people who have probably felt a certain way for a long time but never said so see people expressing how they've felt for a long time. They see people expressing it for the first time, and they feel compelled, almost by instinct, to join. What I'm talking about here cannot be broken down into purely logical terms. I'm not describing a clear-cut, neutral modern phenomenon. I'm describing something hardwired into our ancient primeval instincts. This is the same kind of phenomenon where you see tribes gather together chanting. And I'm not saying that to denigrate the protesters. I'm just explaining where this instinct comes from. We like to think that we are no longer the way that our ancestors were thousands of years ago when they lived as cave people. But really, we have all those same instincts. We just express them differently in our different world. And we see that. That's why on Friday, July 1st, 2011, the Friday of departure, as it's called by the opposition, that's why we see the largest numbers of people protest in cities and towns and villages across Syria. You might remember I just said that the previous Friday, June 24th, we see the largest numbers of people protesting thus far. Well, once again, for the second time in one episode, we now have the largest numbers of people protesting. That is how quickly the protest movement is going. The record is getting broken week after week every Friday. Again, context Fridays are the days we see the largest protests because Friday is the Islamic holy day people have the day off people go to mosque there's there's a lot of complicated reasons behind it but long story short Fridays are the biggest days in terms of protests in the Syrian revolution and now every single Friday we see more and more people protesting in the thousands on this particular Friday July 1st the Friday of departure we see the largest protest to take place in Aleppo thus far 10,000 people at least. And elsewhere, we see multiple tens of thousands of people protesting in places like Homs. And then, on this same day, we have the single largest protest rally to take place in Syria since the protests began, you know, that previous March. The single largest demonstration to take place occurs in Hama, where about half a million people gathered. On top of everything else, you're also seeing larger and larger protests taking place in Damascus, the capital city. Earlier, for for multiple episodes now, we've been saying you're seeing large protests taking place throughout the country, but Damascus and Aleppo stand out for the lack of protests. That's no longer the case. You're seeing large protests taking place in Aleppo, in Latakia, and now even in Damascus of all places, which really should be the last place you see protests taking place in Syria. That should be the last place that happens, according to the regime. For more on this, I'm going to turn to one more quote from Dr. Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and it Trembled. This is a part where she quotes Jamal, a doctor from Hama, who also spent some time in Damascus around this time. Quote, It was impossible to get big numbers to demonstrate in Damascus. People were enormously afraid. So we'd mount flash protests. We'd chant for just five minutes or so, then run away. People also came up with alternative ways of showing they were against the regime. People would agree on a time and a place, and then everyone would show up wearing the same color. For example, everyone would come to the same cafe wearing black. Nobody would say a thing, it was just a way of showing the size of the opposition. Eventually, the security forces figured out what was happening, and came after people, dressed in the designated color. You know, if we'd listened to our parents, we never would have gone out at all. That generation lived through Hama in 1982. My aunt was pregnant at the time, my parents took her to the hospital, They had to stop at checkpoints on the way there and saw corpses lined along the road. My father carries that sight until now. He has that fear until this day, whenever we watched anything on TV related to politics. He'd say, turn off the television. He couldn't even bear to watch a political TV show. That's how afraid he was. My generation is also afraid, but not like them. I now say to my father, why were you silent all those years? We say this to their entire generation. That was a quote from Jamal, a doctor from Hama, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. Now, to play devil's advocate really quick, as bad as the regime's oppression and massacres of protesters have been in 2011, they never reached the level of what Bashar's dad did to Hama in 1982. We're going to cover that on our season finale. We're getting there. But there, there is something to be said for the fact that you now have a generation of people who were raised by people who were traumatized in 1982. You now have a next generation who didn't live through that, who don't remember that, and they are gaining the confidence to go out and protest. That's why we now see half a million people protesting In A half a million people in one city, plus tens of thousands of people protesting all over the country. We're starting to see the number of protesters in Syria climbing up into the millions. It's not an exaggeration. This episode, we are seeing the zenith of the Syrian revolution. I had heard of flash protests, as uh, Jamal described in the quote. We had a previous guest on this show, a Kurd from Aleppo, who described what he called flying protests. It was pretty much the same thing. That's one of the main ways people were able to start protesting in the exceptionally dangerous places like Damascus or Aleppo or Latakia. Those people can't just stand around in one place chanting for an extended period of time like you see in Homs and Hama. They don't have that luxury. They got to show up, do their thing, run, or they'll be killed or arrested and then tortured to death. Now let's shift gears and take a look at how the Assad regime was responding to these developments. We turn again to Sam Daguer's book, Assad or We Burn the Country. Back in Damascus, Manaf Tloss could no longer bear Bashar al-Assad's lies, his philosophical and theoretical musings as Manaf described them, but self-preservation required that he maintain a connection to his childhood friend. Bashar and the shared history of the Assad's and the Tlasses were his only protection in the face of threats from Bashar's brother Maher and his cousins, the Makloofs. Maher was already calling Manaf the mutinous brigadier general. Manaf, who had been a brigadier general for eight years, was passed over in the round of military promotions approved by Bashar in the summer of 2011. It was both a snub and a warning to Manaf. Still, Manaf and the Tlosses had to demonstrate to Bashar that they were not abandoning the regime. Despite their grave concerns over his actions including their hometown, Al-Rastan, both Manaf and his father worried about the repercussions for them from the mounting defections by junior officers in their family and hometown, and so they tried to show Bashar that they were doing their utmost to stop this. One thing was certain. Manaf and Mustafa Tloss were drawing a big distinction between Bashar and regime founder Hafez al-Assad. Their allegiance to Hafez was and would remain absolute. Both Tlosses, father and son, eagerly supported Bashar's ascension to power because this was Hafez's wish. But over the years, they saw Bashar's shortcomings and the influence accumulated by his brother and cousins and allies such as Hezbollah and Iran. Hafez would have never allowed it, the Tlasses believed. Their dissatisfaction also stemmed from the fact that others had gained the power due to families like theirs, which Bashar often called the Old Guard. The Tlasses' concerns over Bashar's leadership came into sharper focus at the start of the uprising. Their feeling was that Hafez would never let the situation deteriorate so badly, or let hardliners hijack management of the crisis facing the regime. Paradoxically, there were still those among the hardliners who viewed Bashar as too soft to Hafez, whose response they thought would have been swifter and more lethal. Even as her husband's loyalty to his old friend wavered, Manaf's wife, Thala, tried to maintain a line to Bashar. She hoped that it would shield her husband from his enemies inside the regime. They emailed and sometimes talked by phone, and in June, Thala brought up a subject dear to Bashar's heart, using the media to alter facts about his bloody crackdown. Thala suggested that his media and political adviser, Boutaina Shaban and Ibrahim Daraji, an articulate and young international law professor, be interviewed by a French language website called Info She said that questions could be emailed to them in advance. The website was established by a French far-right neo-Nazi figure who had founded a public relations firm funded by the Tlosses in the 1990s and awarded a contract by the regime. The website claimed that it wanted to reinform the Francophone public about events in Syria. Bashar welcomed Thala's suggestion. But even as they sent signals of their allegiance, Manaf and Thala realized the confrontation between the regime and its opponents was going to be bloody and prolonged. Regional and global powers were staking their positions, and the Tlosses would have to choose sides if they wished to remain in Syria. The United States and Europe were already indicating they would not just stand by while Bashar continued to slaughter protesters. Manaf was aware that Qatar had started facilitating the defection of army officers, by offering safe passage for them and their families out of Syria, as well as protection and financial support once they were out. There were already whispers about defection plans by officers and soldiers in Manoff's own Republican Guard. Manoff and Thala decided to secretly meet with their friend, the French ambassador, Éric Chevalier, for the first time since the start of the uprising in March 2011, Chevalier was told to go to an office on the second floor of a building in central Damascus, and he was then taken to another floor, higher up, where Manoff and Thala were waiting for him. Manoff recounted to Chevalier his efforts to avert the use of force and initiate dialogue with the protesters, especially in southern Damascus, with what he thought was the blessing and support of Bashar, and how he had been undermined by hardliners every step of the way and then felt betrayed by Bashar. Bashar fooled me, Manaf told Chevalier. I am no longer involved in anything. I am out. He did not tell Chevalier he wanted to defect, but the diplomat sensed that abandoning the regime was very much on Manaf's mind, talk of rifts at the palace was real after all, thought Chevalier. Days later, Bashar and his wife Ozma showed up at the Jala Stadium in Meze, near Manaf's hometown. They were dressed casually in jeans and light jackets. The regime had come up with the idea of sending what it said was the largest Syrian flag ever made to Aleppo, a city that had seen few protests thus far. Well, As we just went over earlier, we're starting to see more and more of them. Now back to the book, quote. It was presented as a spontaneous youth initiative on Facebook. A few dozen young men and women gathered on the stadium's turf. Abu Hafez! Abu Hafez! Abu Hafez! They shouted and pumped their fists into the air as they saw Bashar and Ozma arrive. They raced to hug and kiss Bashar. He smiled nervously. As he was mobbed, and then handed a little girl to hold. Make way, guys, shouted one of the organizers. Then Bashar and Ozma got on their knees with the others and began rolling the giant flag so that it could be sent to Aleppo as cameramen snapped photos. One, two, three, Bashar, you're my life, loyalists chanted. Bashar, you're after God. That was from Assad or We Burn the Country by Sam Daguerre. So the mid- to high-level bureaucrats in the regime are freaking out, they're panicking, some of them are turning on each other, and the guy who's supposed to be in charge, Bashar al-Assad, is distracting himself in a fantasy world. His way of dealing with the protests is smoke and mirrors mixed with some photo ops. No wonder that didn't work. No wonder we keep seeing the largest protests to take place thus far in Syria over and over and over again every single friday sam dugger goes on to describe just how much this approach is failing in his book assad or we burn the country quote on july 1st 2011 Several hundred thousand people gathered in Hama's Assi Square for what was described as the largest protest since the start of the revolt in March. Some estimated the crowd to be as big as half a million. Activists decide to call the day of protests in Hama and across Syria the Friday of Erhal. Across the Middle East, Erhal, or Leave became a rallying cry among protesters who were challenging their autocratic leaders and ordering them to step down from power, to leave. Hama's revolutionary singer, Ibrahim Khashoush, rocked the city with his new chant, Yala Khal Ya Bashar. Bashar, despicable one. The blood of martyrs is not cheap. Pack your stuff in a plastic bag. Come on, Bashar, leave, chanted Kashush as he stood on a makeshift stage next to Asi Square's clock tower. <speaking in foreign language> ya Bashar, repeated the crowd with zeal. People carried balloons and waved flags. There was Syria's current red, white, and black flag, as well as the old green, white, and black one that predated the Baath coup in 1963. There were also Turkish flags to show appreciation for Erdogan's warning to Bashar not to repeat what his father did to Hama in 1982. That day, protesting Hamwis declared their city liberated from the regime. Some went as far as to curse Hafez al-Assad's soul. Bashar's response came a few days later. The city was besieged by regime forces that included army soldiers, macabre units, and the pro-regime thugs known as Shabiha. The defense minister wanted nothing to do with the operation. The Pro-Bashar forces amassed on the city's outskirts began raiding neighborhoods and arresting dozens of male children and adults. At least 16 were killed within 48 hours. Protests could see tanks and heavy weapons being brought to the city, but they were determined to hold on to their square, their patch of liberty and freedom. So they blocked all roads leading to the central Asi Square with large dumpsters, concrete blocks, and flaming tires which spread black smoke up into the air. Some of the more militant elements among the protesters, especially those newly released from prison by Bashar, spoke of the need to take up arms to defend Hama against an imminent massacre. That was Sam Daguer writing in his book, Assad or We Burn the Country. I got a little bit ahead of the narrative with that quote, I figured it was better just to read it all in full, just to give the listeners the context they need. But before that attack on Hama takes place, and we will talk about it, before that happens, we got to give an overdue salute to Mr. Ibrahim Kashush.
0: Yeah, my hair, 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 يا بشار ويا بشار you يا بشار ويا بشار